scripture reading this morning is 1 Samuel chapter 2, verses 1 through 10. It's the prayer of Hannah. And Hannah prayed and said, My heart exalts in the Lord. My horn is exalted in the Lord. My mouth derides my enemies because I rejoice in your salvation. There is none holy like the Lord, for there is none beside you. There is no rock like our God. Talk no more so very proudly. Let not arrogance come from your mouth, for the Lord is a God of knowledge, and by him actions are weighed. The bows of the mighty are broken, but the feeble bind on strength. Those who were full have hired themselves out for bread, but those who were hungry have ceased to hunger. The barren has borne seven, but she who has many children is forlorn. The Lord kills and brings to life. He brings down to Sheol and raises up. The Lord makes poor and makes rich. He brings low and he exalts. He raises up the poor from the dust. He lifts the needy from the ash heap to make them sit with princes and inherit a seat of honor. For the pillars of the earth are the Lord's, and on them he has set the world. He will guard the feet of his faithful ones, but the wicked shall be cut off in darkness. For not by might, shall a man prevail. The adversaries of the Lord shall be broken to pieces. Against them he will thunder in heaven. The Lord will judge the ends of the earth. He will give strength to his king and exalt the horn of his anointed. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Call Tom up for our message this morning. Thank you. Thank you very much. Several of you have come up and thanked me for coming today, and I want to say thank you for inviting me. It's a real honor to be asked to minister the Word of God. Um, I've noticed just as I arrived that there's some slight differences in the English Standard versions, the one that was up here and the one that was read. Um, the uh, page you're going to turn to in your, pulpit, in your pew Bibles, if you did not bring your own personal Bibles, is page 266. So I'd invite you to open the scriptures and we'll look together at the story of Samuel's birth. Um, it's relatively easy to... Um, understand the historic details in connection with the pregnancy of Hannah, uh, Samuel's mother. Samuel, remember, was the first real prophet in Israel. He was also the last judge. The period of the judges was a difficult time for the nation. Um, the scripture says in Judges 21-25 that everyone did what was right in his own eyes in the time of the judges. It was a time of lawlessness. First Samuel 3.1, says that the word of the Lord was precious. There was no open vision uh, yet in Benjamin. 
And so uh, understand the, the context of this passage. It's a time when there's lawlessness. It's a time when the people of God have lost touch with the Almighty. And uh, there's a lot of people who don't really understand what they ought to be doing. Not so with the woman Hannah. Hannah was the wife of a man named Elkanah. Elkanah had two wives, and that caused great grief to Hannah. The bigamy, which she was part of, uh, the one wife who had no children and the other wife who had many children, uh, caused her constant uh, sadness. It may be hard for us in this day and age to understand the great grief that was caused to her by her barrenness, but the barrenness, as well as the bigamy, were uh, serious problems for her. She desperately wanted a child, and she uh, tried and tried again, and, and even though her husband seems to have loved her, he never was able to uh, give her what she wanted. And so she was somewhat forlorn. She was in great distress. And I think this message this morning deals with anyone who's in distress. And at various times in our lives, all of us go through distress. It might be a financial distress where we don't have the money to pay our bills. It might be a domestic distress where we're faced with an unwanted divorce or rebellious teenagers. Uh, it might be um, something in the church, a schism in the church, which causes some people to get up and leave and others at least to be disillusioned. Um, so the, the, uh, the, the constant um, uncertainty which, uh, which Hannah had to face in her situation was troublesome. Now, this wasn't the first instance in the Bible where someone had multiple wives. You may remember that because um, Abraham could not bear a son and a son had been promised by God, Sarah said to him, well, you need to take my handmaiden Hagar and, and have a child with her. And Ishmael was born as a result of that. But that wasn't God's plan, and, and God said to Abraham, and Isaac your seed should be called. But Hagar and her descendants uh, caused great grief for the people of Israel for many years. Uh, Jacob uh, went in to uh, have the wedding night with his wife Rachel, and lo and behold, his father-in-law Laban had substituted Leah, the older sister, because he said, well, you have to take Leah because she's older and she gets married first. And then Leah had four children, four sons, and uh, she had a handmaiden, and uh, before uh, Jacob could marry Rachel, he had to work seven more years. He'd worked seven years to get his first wife, and then he had to work seven more years. But the scripture says he loved Rachel so much, it was as if it was a short period of time. Finally, uh, Rachel had children, but the 12 sons of Jacob, which eventually made up the 12 tribes of Israel that we hear about, um, did not always get along. In fact, you'll remember in the days of Jeroboam, there was a split in the kingdom. Rehoboam, the son of uh, Solomon, said, uh, well, I'm the life of king because I'm the next in line. But he, uh, as it were, turned the screws on the people, raised the taxes, demanded more from them. And Jeroboam, the military leader, said, well, we don't need this. And so he led 10 of the tribes, and they became a separate nation, the nation of Israel in the north, separate from the two tribes in the south. Uh, Hannah dealt with this bigamy. She dealt with her barrenness. It tells us in the scriptures in uh, 1 Samuel 1, I invite you to look there. Um, it's on page 266 of the pulpit Bible I have. Um, verse, five, or verse 4, on that day when they went to sacrifice, Elkanah would give portions to Penina, his wife, and to all her sons and daughters. But to Hannah, he gave a double portion because he loved her, though the Lord had closed her womb. And her rival used to provoke her grievously to irritate her because the Lord had closed her womb. 
Now, this was long before Jerusalem had been established as the national capital. It was long before the temple had been built by Solomon. It was before David even was king, before Saul was a king. The leadership in the country was by these various judges who would rise up and then they would die and then for 40 years there would be a period of lawlessness and another judge would be raised up. Probably the greatest of the judges was Samson. You remember the story of Samson. He was the strong man who got tempted by Delilah and lost his strength. But eventually, in a great show of victory over his enemies, the Philistines, he pulled down the temple on top of himself, the, the uh, place where the Philistines were gathered for a drunken orgy. And as a result, uh, he died too. Samson's birth, um, we don't know his mother's name. His father's name was Manoah. And Manoah's wife, Mrs. Manoah, if you will, uh, had a similar experience with Hannah because she didn't have a son either. But God miraculously gave her a son. And you can see parallels in the story of Samson in the book of Judges and the story here of the birth of Samuel in 1 Samuel. One question which uh, comes up initially is, well, who wrote this book? Why do we have it? I already mentioned there's slight differences in the English translation between some English standard versions. Uh, there's far more difficult differences in the ancient Hebrew. Um, Hebrew uh, was not widely known in the days of Jesus. And so about 100 years before Jesus was born, uh, a group of scholars translated the Hebrew Bible, the Old Testament, into Greek. And that translation, that Greek translation, we call the Septuagint. Actually, we got older copies of the Septuagint, the Greek translation, than we do of the Hebrew Bible itself, until the Dead Sea Scrolls were discovered in the 1940s. Uh, the oldest uh, Hebrew copy of the Old Testament we had was only about 1,000 years old. But when the Dead Sea Scrolls were discovered, we had copies of the Old Testament scriptures, which were 2,000 years old. And so scholars have put together those Dead Sea Scroll fragments. There's two Dead Sea Scroll fragments of the book of 1 Samuel. Um, the Greek translation of the Septuagint and the original Hebrew, which was handed down from generation to generation by the Jews. But as I said, the earliest copies in the first millennium we no longer have. As you compare these, you'll see minor differences in them. But they all tell the same story. They tell the story of a woman in distress. A woman in distress because she had a rival, another wife of her, of her husband. Um, some of you women can probably think of how hard that would be if you had to make a house with another woman as another wife, not just some person is around, but another wife, and, and also the, bur the burden of her barrenness. We've all had struggles. Uh, and finally, there was this constant bickering. Verse 6 in the scripture says, in chapter 1, um, her rival used to provoke her grievously to irritate her because the Lord had closed her womb, as if the barrenness weren't bad enough. She was constantly mocked by Penina, who said, look at you, God must have forsaken you. You don't have a son. I've got lots of children. I've got sons and daughters, but not you. And Elkanah, probably in a moment of husbandly uh, insensitivity, said to her, aren't, aren't I as good to you as seven sons? Well, uh, she loved him, I'm sure, but uh, that wasn't the right thing to say. As any husband has known from time to time, we say the wrong thing, and that was the wrong thing to say. Aren't I as good to you as seven sons? Uh, she probably could have said to him, though she probably didn't, who do you think you are? <laughs> I want a son, and it's bothering me grievously. And can't you make the, my rival, Penina, shut up and stop mocking me for being so barren? Uh, Proverbs 21:19 says, It's better to dwell in the wilderness than with a contentious and angry woman. 
Proverbs 17.1 says, better is a dry morsel and quietness therewith than a house full of sacrifices and strife. And Proverbs 31.26 says, of the righteous man, remember Proverbs 31 is about the godly woman who the, uh, his son is praising. He says, she opens her mouth with wisdom and in her tongue is the law of kindness. And that was not in Penina's tongue. She was far from kind. Matthew Henry, the great Puritan uh, commentator said, Penina could not bear the blessing of fruitfulness. Hannah could not bear the affliction of barrenness. And Akana had to live with them both. So uh, in addition to the uh, distress Hannah was in, let's notice the ways in which she tried to relieve her grief. First of all, she was active in religious observance and ceremony. She went with her husband. Now, the, the feast that the scripture says that Elkanah went up to every year was probably the Feast of Unleavened Bread. It was part of the law of Moses that every male in Israel, three times a year, was to go to the place of worship, which at that time was in a town called Shiloh. Jerusalem, you remember, still wasn't even conquered by the Jewish people. Uh, Shiloh was the place where the tabernacle rested. And within the tabernacle, there was the furniture which God had prescribed in the law, the, the Ark of the Covenant being the most holy piece, and it had above it the uh, cherubim uh, engraved in gold, and the presence of God somehow was visually manifested there when the Ark was there. Uh, in Shiloh, Elkanah would go, and that wouldn't have been too far a journey, maybe 30, 40 miles from where he lived in uh, Ramathim Zufar, but it was um, some distance. And with his household, with Hannah and whatever attendants she might have had, and Penina and her sons and her daughters, and whatever attendants they may have had, it would have been a certain trek. And we read that when they got there, Elkanah's practice was to offer a bullock and an ephah of flour and a skin of wine. They didn't have bottles in those days. They used animal skins to contain liquids. Now that very much tells us what kind of a feast, it, what kind of an offering this was. Excuse me. <laughs> this was a peace offering. If you read the early chapters of Leviticus, you'll read there were different kinds of offerings prescribed for the people. There were burn offerings. There were peace offerings. There were trespass offerings. There were sin offerings. And we certainly don't have time to begin to go on all the differences and similarities between those offerings. But just take my word for it that what was offered here would have been what was called a peace offering. And with the peace offerings, unlike some of the others, women were to participate. And the people who offered the sacrifices were to consume what was left over after the priests had their share. The, the animal, the bullock, would have been slaughtered, the blood sprinkled in a certain fashion, uh, the rest of it cooked, and the flour would have been cooked into some sort of a, a, a loaf of, of, of bread or, or cake, and the, the wine would have been naturally consumed along with the rest. It would have been a fine meal, a rather sumptuous meal, a, a rich meal, something with delicacy to it. And, uh, and, and, and this all had to be transported to the tabernacle at Shiloh. And kind of went along. Now, after a few years of being uh, mocked by Penina, you would think there would be a strong tendency for her not to go. And if you're like me, there have been times when you've been tempted not to come to church. There's reasons not to come to church. Maybe people at church don't understand you, or they've misjudged you, or they're not very nice. And so you say, well, I can do without that. I can worship God in the woods by a walk in the woods or go out to Longwood Gardens. Yes, you can. Uh, I can worship God in my closet, in my bedroom. 
Yes, you can. But the scripture says we shouldn't neglect the gathering ourselves together as the manner of some is. We need to get together. We need to worship God together. God wants us to. So she continued in her religious observances and her ceremonies, but it was not enough to alleviate her distress. Also, she had uh, significant bouts of crying and giving up food. She was so overwrought she couldn't even eat. I don't know whether any of you have experienced that, but that indicates a deep grief, terrible sadness. Again, you may say, well, if I didn't have any child, I don't think I would be so sad. But I bet there's some things in your life which have troubled you deeply, which to others seem insignificant. You can say, well, this really bothers me. I can't get over this. And yet the person right next to you experiencing much of the same thing says, that's no big deal. The point is, our temptations are personal. God allows to come into our path things which are hard to deal with. And there's ways to deal with them and ways not to deal with them. One of the ways not to deal with them is excessive crying and fasting. A third thing that Hannah tried to solve her problem was she made a vow. Now this vow that if God would give her a son, she would dedicate the son to the tabernacle service and be with the high priest Eli for the rest of his days is a bit of a puzzle to us. How do we understand it? Was it a good thing? Was it a bad thing? Ultimately, it was a good thing for Israel because they had Samuel who was trained by Eli and grew up in the tabernacle and so he knew all that needed to be known about the ways of God. That's where the copies of the scriptures would have been kept, the law of Moses. But I'm not sure it was an altogether good thing for her to make that vow. We're tempted sometimes to make deals with God. You may wonder, well, maybe I can have my problem solved by promising God something. God doesn't need your promises. He doesn't need anything you can give to him. So don't be tempted to make a rash vow. Now, I'm not saying don't ever make a vow. If you're going to get married, you should make a vow. If you're going to testify in court, you should make a vow. But be hesitant to make a rash vow. Ecclesiastes 5.5 5 says it's better that you not make a vow than that you should make a vow and not pay. She said in verse 11, I will give Samuel to the Lord all the days of his life. And then when Samuel's later born, we have another puzzle. We're not sure whether she was going back on her promise or not because she was going to take the boy up to the tabernacle, but she said to Eli, she said to Elkanah, well, I want to keep him until after he's weaned. I don't even want to go up the yearly offering here with Samuel not yet weaned. And you might say, well, you know, child can be weaned of his mother's breast milk in an early age. Yeah, but probably not in this case. I understand from reading commentaries that there were different kinds of weaning. There was the weaning from the mother's breast milk, but there was a weaning, it was called a weaning at about age seven when some child could basically not be supervised strictly. And there was another weaning when they got to be about 11 or 12. And we don't know exactly how long the baby Samuel was with Hannah. Perhaps she was going back on her vow. Perhaps not. I like to think the best of people. We all should do that. But in any event, there was some hesitancy about her to fulfill the vow. But eventually, she came through. Eventually, she said, OK, now I'm going to take Samuel to Eli. And she did what she should have done. One fourth way I noticed in which Hannah didn't deal with her distress in the right way was a certain amount of self-pity. Look at verse 16 of chapter 1. The scripture says, 
Hannah said, do not regard your servant, Eli, as a worthless woman. For all along I've been speaking out of my great anxiety and vexation. It's almost she's, when Eli misjudges her, and I hope you remember the story about how she was praying without moving her, with only moving her lips, but no sound, no audible sound. And Eli thought she was drunk, and he said, put away your wine, woman. And she said, I'm not drunk, I'm, I'm praying to God. Uh, and then he sort of apologizes to her. But then she goes off and she says in verse 16, as I just read, all along I've been speaking out of great anxiety and vexation. She says, don't tell me I can't be sad. I'm right to be sad. Well, no. She shouldn't have been so oversat about her distress. It was distressful. She should have acknowledged it. God doesn't want us to be naive about our troubles. When things are going wrong, we need to say things are going wrong. You read the scriptures and you read the Psalms and again and again, David complains to God as it were. Remember the words on the cross, Jesus cried out, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? So it's never wrong for us to tell God in prayer that we don't understand what's happening and we wish he would alleviate our suffering and our distress. But she's not speaking to God here. She's speaking to Eli. She's telling someone who really didn't need to know he didn't need to be justified. All he needed to know was she wasn't drunk. He says, I've been really vexed by it. This has been a real problem. This wasn't a counseling session where she's one-on-one -on -one with the pastor telling him about her problems. This was apparently out in the open where others might have heard it, and she's saying, I've been wronged by God, as it were. I'm terribly upset about the whole thing. So those are four ways in which Hannah dealt wrongly with her distress. Let's look next at God's provision. And the provision God made was not just for Hannah. He didn't just answer her prayer, but we know in hindsight now, he was providing for the entire nation. Few characters in scripture from the very youngest years until they're old and gray and about to die live righteous lives without reproach. And yet Samuel is one of them. You'll search in vain through the scriptures to find sins attributed to Samuel. That doesn't mean he was a perfect man. I'm sure he was a sinner like you or I, but he was a good man. He was, a, he was a, an honorable person. He was chosen by God to ordain the kings. This was at a time in history when the reign of judges was passing away and the reign of kings was coming into existence. And in that interim period, the high priesthood was, becoming, was declining, becoming less and less important. We know from another passage in the Chronicles that Elkanah was a Levite. Now, every priest was a Levite, but not every Levite was a priest. And Elkanah was a Levite. And what that meant was that he had certain responsibilities. Just as we have deacons in a church who do things which the elders in the church maybe are too busy to do or um, need assistance doing, so too in those days the priests in the tabernacle needed Levites to sweep the floors, to arrange the furniture, to do whatever needed to be done to greet the people, to put down any disorders that might arise. And Elkanah was one of those people. Uh, he went up once a year, so you kind of wonder, well, there were three feasts in the year that the, Jew, males, male, the Jewish males were to go to. There was the Feast of Tabernacles, there was the Feast of Weeks, and there was the Feast of Unleavened Bread. And every adult male was to go there, all three feasts. But Elkanah, it seems, only went once a year and probably the most important, the Feast of Unleavened Bread. So whether he was derelict in his duty as a Levite, we don't know. But the scripture does point out that he was one. God was providing for the entire nation of Israel here with Samuel. Um, we know that because 
uh, in the blessing of Eli in verse 17 of chapter 1, he said, Go in peace. The God of Israel grant you your petition that you have made to him. He calls attention to the fact that this wasn't just the God of Hannah. This was the God of Israel. This was the God of the whole world, but especially of his promised elect people. The God of Israel will grant you a request. How Eli knew that, we are not told. He apparently had some advanced knowledge of what was going to happen. He knew that Hannah was going to become pregnant before Hannah knew that Hannah was pregnant. Somehow, either maybe he had a dream, maybe he had a miraculous vision, maybe he somehow just knew by intuition that God was going to grant that request. Um, God speaks in a variety of ways in the Old Testament. Remember the words of Hebrews 1.1, God who at various ways and various times spoke in time passed under the fathers by the prophets has in these last days spoken to us by his son, Jesus Christ. And later the writer says, if the word spoken by angels was true and every uh, sin received a just recompense or reward, how shall we escape if we neglect so great a salvation which has been spoken to us by the Lord Jesus and confirmed unto us by those who heard him, the apostles, God also bearing them witness with signs and wonders and miracles according to his will. There was a blessing of Eli, which was God's provision, an assurance to Hannah, you're going to have a son. Secondly, there was the submission of Hannah. In verse 18, we read that after Eli gave her this promise, she said, let your servant find favor in your eyes. And the woman went her way and ate, and her face was no longer sad. Remember before she was weeping and she wouldn't eat? The writer of this passage, and I think it was Samuel, her son, because how else would someone know all these intimate details about what his mother had done? After the words of Eli, she had some peace of mind, some satisfaction. You know, that's really the, the main thing we need when we're in distress. We need to just be able to live with it. We don't need the distress taken away, the cause of the distress taken away so much. Uh, God will work it out. He's, he's in charge, he knows everything, and he's in control of everything. So if you have some need that's causing you to worry, don't worry. Remember the, Paul, the words of the Apostle Paul in Philippians? He says, be anxious for nothing, but in everything, by prayer and supplication with thanksgiving, let your requests be made known unto God, and the God of peace shall grant you your needs. We have to move along. I'm going to skip over some points here. And, because we want to talk about Hannah's prayer. Because as a result of these series of events in which Hannah was in distress, and her distress was not relieved by her ways, but was relieved by God's ways, she got what she needed, what she wanted, what she had hoped for, and it was a son. And we talked about how perhaps she wanted to go back on her vow at first and was slow in doing it, but she did it. She obeyed God, and she kept her vow, which we all should do. If we make a promise to God, it's a serious matter. Even though God is invisible, and even though you can't touch him, when we came in, a lot of people shook our hands, you can't shake God's hand. Until Christ returns, you can't kiss him, but he's there, he's here. He's in our midst. This is the promise not only that he's everywhere, God is omnipresent, but where two or three are gathered in his name, he's especially there in the midst. He's here in the midst. He's here speaking to us today. May his word burn into our heart. So let's look at Hannah's prayer. Um, this was kind of God's intervention. God gave Hannah a prayer. 
Now, now, prayer is a thing which we talk about a lot and we read about a lot in religious contexts, but we don't think about a lot. But we need to think about prayer. What is prayer? Well, we can be very elementary and say it's talking to God, and that's true. Prayer is talking to God. But why is it so hard? I mean, you can talk to me and I can talk to you, unless there's some great animosity, we can talk even if we're not friends. But talking to God is so hard. I won't ask for a show of hands, but how many of you this week spent a lot of time in prayer? I'm sure there's some who have. I'm sure there's many who have not. I have not, I confess, as much time as I should have spent in prayer. I didn't spend as much time in prayer for this presentation of the Word of God this morning as I should have, though I did pray about it and others are praying about it. Have you prayed before you came to church this morning that God would speak to you through his word? That's how God speaks to us today. I'm not ruling out the possibility that God might impress upon you and give you a strong intuition about something about to happen. Or, or maybe God will, through some angelic revelation or some dream, teach you. But the primary way God speaks to us today, the only infallible way, the way you can know it's true, don't believe it just because an angel from heaven tells you something, is it in the Word of God? How much time do we spend reading the Word of God? We want to notice, first of all, Hannah's frame of mind in prayer. She was thoughtful. If you read chapter 2, we read chapter 2 earlier. We, you heard it read. She was thoughtful. She didn't use vain repetition. She didn't say the same thing over and over and over. She kind of alluded to some of the same thoughts in different words, in different ways, repeatedly, but it was not a vain repetition. It wasn't a mantra. You know what a mantra is? Some Eastern religions say, if you say this formula of words again and again and again and again and again, and again it'll happen. Uh, and somehow the Almighty, the invisible powers that be, will hear it and it matters to them. God doesn't hear you because of your much speaking. Don't think that you can pray enough. You may say, well, I need to pray every day. Well, you do need to pray every day, but it's not a formula. Uh, you need to say, give thanks before you eat your food. Well, you do need to give thanks before you eat your food, but it's not a formula for success. It's not the keys to happiness. It should be an expression of your love for God. Our prayer should not be overly emotional. Romans 8.26, Paul tells us that the Holy Spirit bears witness with our spirit that we are the sons of God, and he makes intercession with the Father with groanings which can't even be expressed. Somehow, when we pray, the Holy Spirit prays through us. Now, it's not like we're um, zombies <laughs> possessed by the Holy Spirit. We're still individuals, but in that, uh, that way, we can't understand when we're born again, the Holy Spirit is united with us. We're one with Christ. We have a union with the Son of God and his Spirit. And prayers should not only be brief, um, Ephesians 6, 18 through 20, Paul says, pray always. He's talking about the armor of God. You remember he talks about the sword of the spirit and the breastplate of, sal breastplate of righteousness and the helmet of salvation and all the other pieces of armor which the Christians should have. He concludes it with this, praying always with all prayer, I think he means all types of prayer, and supplication in the spirit and watching thereunto with all perseverance and supplication for all the saints, he could hardly be more universal than this. And for me, that utterance may be given unto me, that I may open my mouth boldly to make known the mystery of the gospel, 
for which I am an ambassador in bonds, that therein I may speak boldly as I ought to speak. When I've spoken in the past about the armor of the servant of the Lord, I said that the prayer is kind of like the oil, which keeps the rest of the pieces of armor from squeaking, keeps them from rusting. You know, we need, to, we need to have a helmet of salvation. We need to have a breastplate of righteousness. We need to have a sword of the spirit. We have, have to have our feet shod with the preparation of the gospel of peace. Loins girt about with truth. But those instruments of armor can get rusty. And to keep them from getting rusty, we need all prayer. All kinds of prayer for all kinds of things. Sometimes we need to be alone for an hour doing nothing but praying. Now, there's nothing wrong to have the open scriptures up in front of you. In fact, that's a good practice to open to the Psalms and just read them and pray them, echo them in your heart. But sometimes you're in the middle of a crisis and you need to just shoot an arrow up to God and say, Lord, help me. And that's, that's a different kind of prayer. Sometimes we need to pray for others. And our burden should be on the poor people in Turkey and Syria who have suffered so much in the past couple of weeks with the earthquakes. And sometimes we need to pray for the people in Ukraine. Praying for others is a different kind of prayer than praying for your children or praying for your spouse or praying for yourself that you might be more holy. Prayer should be joyous. My heart rejoices in the Lord in verse 1, Hannah says. My heart rejoices. It says exults in, this, in the Pew Bible, but the word is rejoices. He rejoices in the Lord. He says, she says, my horn is exalted. Now that word horn is kind of interesting. The I brought along an ESV with me this morning. I don't normally use the ESV, but I brought one along to use it. And I noticed early on in the service here that mine was different from the one that was up here on the screen and is different from the Pew Bible. So I'm using a Pew Bible right now. Uh, the word horn doesn't appear in my particular version of the ESV. I don't know why Bible translators do that. They change English words from edition to edition without giving any notice of it. But the literal word in the Hebrew is horn. And if you've heard of the Matterhorn, the Matterhorn is a very tall mountain on the border between Switzerland and Italy. That suffix of that name, horn, is the word in Hebrew which is used here. It's a pointy thing. So it's also sometimes used as a synonym for a mountain or a hill. And what Hannah is praying when she says, my horn is exalted in the Lord, she's saying, the ground I've been standing on has been lifted up. I was down in the dumps. I was in the valley. But now I'm on the mountaintop. You've heard that expression, a mountaintop experience. Hannah says, I have a mountaintop experience now because I have a son. Exactly when she prayed this, we don't know. It's a little unclear from the context whether she prayed this immediately after she left Eli and had the promise of assurance and she knew it was going to come true because God had said it through Eli the prophet, or whether she said it after Samuel was born, having the son which she had hoped for, or whether she said it when she had dropped Samuel off at the tabernacle with Eli and was going home. We don't know. But at this time, she was assured that God had answered her prayer. She had a son. And she was going to have other children later. But this was the son she had longed for. And he was to be, as it were, the savior of Israel. Prayer needs to be joyous. My heart rejoices in the Lord. And finally, prayer needs to be bold. When you ask God for blessings, are you specific? It's easy to say, God bless the missionaries. Help the poor people. I hope all those millions in Syria and Turkey are okay. No, you need to know the names of some people. And you need to ask specific things of God. And if you don't know people in Syria or Turkey, try to find out. Or try to find out some missionaries who are there to help them. Do some research for your prayer. God wants us to be specific. 
Because you see, if we're general in our prayers and we don't ask for God for specific things, it's easy for us to say, well, God must have answered my prayer. I mean, I ask God to bless the missionaries. I'm sure the missionaries are okay. But if we say, God, give me a son, there's either a yes or a no. It's not always a yes, but we're to pray boldly, asking God for specific things, praying that God would give us what we need. Now, God is interested in everything. I remember when I was a child, I used to like to listen to the Phillies on the radio. We didn't have a TV in those days. But I'd sit in the kitchen while my parents were asleep, and I'd listen to the Phillies at 11, 11.30 at night, far beyond my bedtime. And I'd be praying that the Phillies would win. And they always lost. <laughs> in those days, in the 60s, in the late 50s, the Phillies always lost. But I would pray to God that the Phillies would win. And as I became more mature, I began to realize, well, I think God cares whether the Phillies win, but should I be devoting precious moments to ask God to make the Phillies win? After all, how will that advance the kingdom of God on earth? If the Phillies lose or the Phillies win, as far as I know, it didn't matter. Now, I'm sure it did matter to God because Jesus said the very hairs of your head are numbered. And so I'm sure that God knew and intended whether the Phillies would lose or whether the last batter would strike out. But the point is, we shouldn't pray for um, insignificant things. Pray for great things. Paul says to Timothy, when you're in the assembly with the people of God, pray for kings and all that are in authority. When was the last time you specifically asked God's blessing on President Biden? I don't care your politics. You may hate the guy. You may love the guy. But you should be praying for him. When was the last time you prayed for Mitch McConnell? When was the last time you prayed for Nancy Pelosi? Specifically, that God would do good things through them. Maybe it's make them act in a way which is holier than they are. Or maybe it's may their efforts, legislative efforts, come to fruition. Whatever it is, God says pray for kings and all that are in authority. And specifically, we should pray for leaders in the world, all that are in authority, that there might be peace. Because you see, when there's war and there was tumult, it's an impediment to the gospel. Missionaries get killed. Printing presses get destroyed. The word of God can't go out. So we should pray for peace. You know, that sounds like a pious maxim, pray for peace. Sort of thing you'd find on a postage stamp. It may have even been a postage stamp which said that. When was the last time you prayed for peace? I think a lot of us have been a little bit disturbed by the recent news about the Chinese surveillance and balloons and whatever else in the skies overhead. Have you prayed that the leaders of communist China would be peaceful toward America? Have you? Have you prayed for uh, Mr. Putin in Russia that he would pull back the troops from invading Ukraine? God can do it. I remember years ago when Fernando Marcos was was the leader of the Philippines. And everybody thought when, when he was deposed, it was going to be a terrible, terrible civil war in the Philippines. And he stepped down voluntarily, and his successor took the presidency without one drop of blood being shed. And I remember, I, would, I for one, was praying for that with the church we were in at the time. And I was shocked that God had answered the prayer so specifically. Well, Ferdinand Marcus is long gone, and the Philippine people have other problems today. But in the world's system, you need to be praying for specific needs in specific places. Matthew, in the Sermon on the Mount, Jesus said, Ask, and it shall be given unto you. Seek, and ye shall find. 
Knock and it shall be opened unto you. Now that doesn't mean in every particular God's going to do what you ask him for. Again, it's not a formula, but it's a promise that if you ask boldly, God will hear. God's providence intervenes. Hannah says, you are holy. Verse 2 of chapter 2. There is none holy like the Lord. And, and when you see the word Lord in all caps, that means the name of God. It's sometimes translated Jehovah and other times understood to be Yahweh. But however the word is pronounced in the Hebrew, it's the name of God. It doesn't mean God in a general sense. See, all people of all religions have a God. Irreligious people have a God. But God is the Lord, Jehovah, Yahweh, the one who saved Israel and brought them through the desert and delivered them when the Egyptians were drowned in the Red Sea. God silences his critics. Penina had mocked Hannah, but we don't read that she continued to mock her. Hannah had the last laugh. Samuel became a judge in all the earth. God moves mountains. We read that about how Hannah's horn was exalted in verse 1 of chapter 2. Her horn was exalted. I wish we had the time to talk more specifically about the comments that Hannah makes in her prayer. I hope this afternoon you'll take it down and, and read it and think about it and pray about it. And give, pray that God would give you understanding. But my final point is Hannah's vindication was certain. And our vindication is certain if God is our God, if the Lord is our God, if Yahweh, Jehovah is our God, your vindication in your distress is going to happen. Maybe not in the specific way you expect. Psalm 100 verse 3, we are his people and the sheep of his pasture, the psalmist writes. Do you ask your father for things? Jesus said, which person asking his father for bread will get a stone? Or if you ask your father for a piece of fish, he'll give you a snake. If you being evil know how to give good gifts unto your children, how much more should your heavenly father give good things to those who ask him? Our cause in at least ought to be God's cause, is your purpose on earth to glorify God and to serve him. Hannah here silences those who set themselves against her. Her rivals could say nothing. This tells us something about God. He has the power of life. He could give birth to a barren woman. He has the power of wealth, verses 7 and 8 of chapter 2. He can make the poor rich and the rich poor. We see that all the time. How many millions were lost Overnight, because a particular cryptocurrency exchange went defunct uh, when there was that uh, Bernie Madoff scandal. How many famous people in Hollywood lost their life savings because they trusted in man rather than in God? God's adversaries will be silenced. They will be broken. God presides over death and birth. Remember the words of Job in Job chapter 26. God stretches out the north over an empty place. And he hangs the earth on nothing. Now, I don't know whether Job in his day understood what that meant or not, but I think today we can understand that. Why does the earth circle around the sun? Scientists don't know. Why does it go down? Well, what's down? Um, we, scientists don't even know why the electrons and the protons and the neutrons do what they do. We know they do that. As time has advanced, they've learned about positrons and various other subatomic particles. Matthew Henry writes, Hannah's horn is exalted because she has the horn of the Messiah and he will be exalted. It secures our hope. The subjects of Christ's kingdom will be safe. 
The enemies of Christ's kingdoms will be ruined. For the anointed, the Lord Christ is girded with strength and is able to save and destroy as he sees fit. One, one final point and then I'll stop. And that is, notice verse um, 10 of chapter 2. The adversaries of the Lord shall be broken to pieces. Against them he will thunder in heaven. The Lord will judge the ends of the earth. He will give strength to his king and exalt the horn of his anointed. That word anointed is the same word which in English, well, is the, anointed is an English word. The Greek word is Christ. The Hebrew word is Messiah. This is the first time in scripture when any person talks about the coming Messiah. How did Hannah know that there was coming Messiah? We don't know. God must have revealed it to her. But she is the first one who announces there's coming an anointed one, one who is the Messiah, the Christ. He will be exalted. Let's pray together. Father, teach us to pray. Jesus' disciples asked him to teach them to pray. And we can memorize the Lord's Prayer, but we don't know how to pray. Give us a spirit of prayer, a heart for prayer, a devotion to prayer. Help us to pray without ceasing. We ask in Jesus' name. Amen.